Praise God for His goodness. Amen. I love singing with you guys. I will just echo what Neil said. It is awesome because when you get into a place like this and there are other people who are lifting their voices to the same God as you, to the same Jesus as you, there's something really powerful about that. You know, we were singing a little bit earlier, let your kingdom come, let your will be done. And that's really what Jesus has been showing his followers as we've been going through this, calling this piece of Luke personal trainer He's teaching them what that kingdom looks like. He's teaching them what their part in it is because as his followers, he knows that the time is coming when he is going to die. He knows the time is coming when he's going to rise again and when he's going to leave this earth and they will be his kingdom in this place. They will be here to spread the kingdom. And if you remember last week, uh, as we studied in our passage, Jesus was on the mountaintop. He had taken three disciples with him And he had met Moses and Elijah there. And there was this incredible moment of God's glory on the mountaintop. In fact, I haven't researched this, but I would not be surprised if that is where we get the phrase mountaintop experience. And we use that phrase in our own spiritual journeys, right? Those moments where where something really unique happens, something so special, something that feels so clear from God. And you feel like you're, you're on the mountaintop with him. Well, we always come back to the valley, don't we? I was reminded by my brother a couple weeks ago, he had one of these experiences, but his was literally mountaintop, because while he was in college, he had joined this program called La Vida, and and what they essentially were doing was, they were doing kind of this survivalist thing. So he had a lot of training, he had to buy a lot of gear, it had to be gear that could keep you warm, or gear that could keep you cool, because they were just going to go out into the wilderness and survive for a while. (laughs) And as he told me about this, all this preparation, I remember the, the time leading up to it, My primary response to everything he was sharing with me was, sounds nice for you. (laughs) I am not interested. And so then for, I think there were, it was about a two-week trip that they did. All of this expertise, all of this training, all of this gear went into that moment, that experience. What must have been incredible. What was really interesting was that when he came back, maybe it was because of my attitude going into it, But we didn't talk a lot about it afterwards. I thought that was really interesting because our our passage last week said that when Peter, James, and John came back down the mountain, they didn't actually tell anybody about it in those days. And so it was actually just a few weeks ago that I was on the phone with my brother, and I don't even know how it came up, but I said, hey, what was that Levita thing all about? And then I got like the hour-long version. It was just incredible. Seriously, it was like, has it been an hour already? To hear not only the, can you survive and do you have the right gear and what does it look like, but how amazing it was for him to be separated from distraction, that as he was hiking, as he was climbing, as he was surviving, to just listen for God. And so a physical mountaintop also became a spiritual mountaintop experience for him. And he said it was really hard to come back from that trip Because everything else in life is awfully normal after something like that. I don't know if you've had an experience like that. Maybe you're a climber and an adventurer like my brother is. But but maybe for you, you've had those spiritual moments. Those moments where you feel like you just see God's glory so clearly. You understand something about his plan. A verse that you've never seen before is so perfect for this moment. You know that it's God and you're holding on to that. And then you go, you try to share that with somebody, and it's like they don't understand. 
Or, or you hit this valley time in your life and you say, what, what happened to that moment? Where did that moment go? How do I get that moment back? Well, I think we have an opportunity to see today as Jesus himself comes back to a valley that what happens on the mountain is preparation for the valley. What happens on the mountain is preparation for the valley. And I think it's fair to admit that the valley is not always bad. Although some valleys certainly are deeper than others, sometimes the valley is just really, really normal. And we chase that emotion that we felt on the mountaintop because that's when I know my faith is real because, like, I'm feeling it. And then there's times that I'm not feeling it, and we wonder, what is God still doing? Is he still speaking to me? Is he still using me? Is he still working here? I think mountaintops are what we need, but they're not where we live. And one of our key points last week was not to put those tent pegs in too deep, right? Peter wanted to pitch a tent, let's just stay here. But Jesus knew they had to come back down the mountain into the valley because what he was doing there was preparation. And so we come this week to Luke chapter 9. We're continuing, and this is in verse 37. We see what happens next. Now it happened on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, that a great multitude met him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him, so he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So, I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Boy, mountaintop's over, huh? All, all the distraction that had been removed, the second he gets down the mountain, the multitude is back. They're always following Jesus around, right? And not only that, but they're needy. He knows this. And then there's this incredible picture of this father who brings his only son who is under the influence of the enemy. Moments ago, just the day before, standing with Moses, standing with Elijah, standing in glory, and now this. What will Jesus do with this moment? Well, this is something I think that Luke intentionally points out. Because he also told us about the widow's only son. And a couple of chapters ago, he told us about Jairus' only daughter, his only child. And now here is this father who brings his only son. Now, we talk about that a lot. But when we talk about that in the Bible, a father with an only begotten son. What, is, what does that make you think of? I think the words of this father demonstrate the same kind of heart of God the Father. You, you hear the love in his voice for his only child who he cares about. And you remember God's words last week. He said, this is my son whom I love. Hear him. You can almost hear those same words from this father. This is, this is my son whom I love. Heal him. And there's a word that he uses here that I think is really valuable for us because I don't know about you, but I imagine that there are probably people who you love that when you think about your relationship with them or you think about their place in life, you might say they are under the influence of the enemy. Notice the word that this father uses twice. He says, I implore. 
I think there's a word for us here that we can implore Jesus on behalf of others. That we can implore Jesus on behalf of others. You see, because if Jesus is preparing on the mountain for what happens in the valley, then he has come down from glory in power, the Son of God, but he's not basking in the glory. He's here to use power for others because this Father is powerless to do anything. He cannot heal his own Son. Oh, but he can bring his loved one to Jesus. And he can pray. That's all this really is, right? What do we call it when we talk to Jesus about something that's heavy on our heart? It's prayer, right? He says, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. You have loved ones who are under the influence of the enemy. It seems likely to me that probably most, if not all of us here, will never deal with this specific situation, a child who is demon-possessed. But we know that if we're paying any attention to the world around us, if we're paying any attention to our own hearts, we know that the influence of the enemy is all around us. Oftentimes we kind of brush it away from ourselves. Oh, well, I'm just, you know, there's some things I struggle with. But we can see it so clearly in other people, right? But the reality is it's all around us. I want you to think just for a moment. If you know Christ as your Savior, if he's your forgiver, if you know that he has released you from the power of that enemy, but there are people who you love who have not known him that way, Think of those people. You know, what is the influence that the world, that the culture, that, that the enemy has on them? Maybe it's substance abuse. And maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's some other addiction. Maybe it's just a broken relationship. You, know, you think back to when we were walking through Luke chapter 6 and it said, love your enemy. And you said, okay, I'm going to do it. But now it's like five months later and they still don't love you back. Right? could be a parent. could be a child. could be a friend at school. A partner in business. could be a sister or a brother or a brother-in-law. Can you think of that person? Do you ever feel as helpless as this father felt? So what do we do? Well, I think we can use this word. And so let's dig into this word a little bit deeper. Let's unpack this word, implore. Because it's so easy to read right past that word without the emotion that really goes into it. And so a father came up. He said, teacher, I implore you. No, no. He's desperate. He's begging. And one of the ways that you can find out more about what's going on in a word like that, uh, this screen capture you see is from BibleHub.com. If you just look up the verse, Luke 9.40, you click a couple links, and what you can pull up is actually a breakdown of each word that's in the passage, and it will show you the Greek word that goes with it. And so this is the place where, like, you don't even have to know Greek. You just have to be able to line it up to which English word you're trying to figure out, because then on that far left side, if you click that, the, the English letters version of that Greek word, it will show you all of the places in the Bible that that word shows up. And not just that... that um, root word, but that specific form of the word. So in case I'm losing you, 
hear this. When we talk, sometimes our verbs take different endings, right? I could tell you that I am walking, I have walked, or I'm going to walk. All of those are about walking. You, you understand what I'm saying? But we have different endings on them depending on if they're past tense, present tense, when they're being used, what they mean. It's the same thing in Greek. And so when you look up this word that he says, I implored, in that exact form, it only appears one other place in the New Testament. And it just so happens that it is in Luke. In fact, in Luke chapter 22, it is Jesus who speaks this word. So just as in the passage we're in today, he had been on the mountain talking about his death. In Luke 22, Jesus is at the table with his disciples preparing for his death. Just as in our passage today, somebody was under the influence of the enemy and someone else implored Jesus on their behalf. So in Luke 22, the enemy's influence was at work. It says in verses 31 and 32, the Lord said, Simon, Simon. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. That is the exact same Greek word, edaethen. The exact same word when the father said, I implored well, now it kind of makes sense why they would translate it as prayer, right? Because Jesus is talking to God about someone he loves who the enemy is trying to influence. He says, Peter, I have begged for you. I have implored God on your behalf because I love you, Peter, and I don't want you to fall under the influence of the enemy. We can implore Jesus on behalf of others. That is an incredibly powerful gift that he gives us. Because we realize it's said that he asked the disciples, he implored them, he was just as serious, and they could do nothing. Because that power only comes from Christ. That in those moments when we feel like we can do nothing, there is something we can do. So pause for just a minute and think about that person. Maybe it's more than one. And instead of writing this down and remembering it to do it later, would you just do that right now in the quietness of your own heart? Lift that name, that person, to Jesus. I implore you, Jesus, for. I beg you, Jesus, for. Jesus, I trust your power for. It can be a difficult way to pray, but it can be a powerful way to pray. I know that that is something that has been very close to my heart is there are people I care about and you realize there are times where the best thing you can do is beg God on their behalf. He heard you just now. He listens to prayer. He knows that name too and he loves them even more than you do. 
but there was something here that had sort of, sort of slipped for the disciples. There was something here that they had missed because it says they were not able to cast this demon out. And you remember, this is the other nine. Because three had gone up the mountain with Jesus, and so they had just come back with him to find out that, hey, while you were up there having a great time, we've got this issue and we can't figure it out, and now the Father's complaining, I implored them, you're supposed to know Jesus, why isn't this working? You see, we've got to put our faith in his power for others. In verse 41, Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Ooh. That's not quite the uh, Jesus meek and mild that we're used to, is it? You can hear the frustration in his words. You can hear some of the, the tension that he feels that while he's gone, this whole thing starts to fall apart. Faithless and perverse generation. See, the disciples had opportunity to demonstrate Jesus' power to other people. They had opportunity. They had experience. They had done this before. You remember, he sent out the twelve. They were healing. They were casting out demons. They were teaching about the kingdom. So they had capability. And I wonder if that's almost what went wrong in this moment. Because in that moment, they knew they were totally reliant on the power of God when they had that success. Now they may start to think, oh, we know how to do this. We've done this before. Jesus isn't here, but we don't need Jesus. We can do it, right? None of us would ever think that way. At least not intentionally. But it happens sometimes, doesn't it? We go to the mountaintop experience or we have that moment of clarity with God and we, and we just, we realize how desperately we rely on him for this day. And he brings us through it. And we say, thank you, God. I will take care of Tuesday now. I'll handle Wednesday by myself. I think I've got it. I understand what you were teaching me. And it's almost too easy to feel like, now that I know how to do it, I'll do it on my own. It does not work. (laughs) It did not work for the 12 disciples closest to him. It did not work for the nine left in the valley. It will not work for us either. We have to put our faith in his power for others. You know, if we want to think about how we can influence other people for the kingdom, how we can spread that kingdom... He uses us. We are blessed to be a part of that, but it never comes from us. It always comes from him. In fact, in one of the other gospel accounts of this story, the disciples actually asked Jesus, why couldn't we do it? And the answer he gave them, a little mysterious maybe, he said, well, this kind only comes out with prayer and fasting. Now, I don't think he's saying there that that there's some magical incantation that whether you love Jesus or not, as long as you do it this way, it works. I mean, what is prayer? Time spent talking to God. What is fasting? Time spent denying yourself, removing distractions to make sure that you're aligned with God. I think what he's saying is, our time with God is what we bring back to the places that we serve him. If we want to be able to demonstrate his glory, show people what he can do, let them see his healing and learn about his love, it has to start here. Time with God. Time on the mountaintop that we bring back to the valley, that we bring back to other people. I wonder if that might be what the disciples were missing because when he calls them faithless and perverse, that that word faithless really just means unbelieving. Were you unbelieving in me? Were you believing in yourselves instead? But clearly he's not only talking to the disciples because he mentions an entire generation. He's saying the world as it is right now 
is unbelieving. And we know that. We see people rejecting Christ all over the place in these stories. And perverse. That there are things that God meant for good that they have twisted and used for evil. I don't have to tell you that probably every generation since the fall can be described this way. I mean, this is the reality of the world that we're in right now. And and honestly, it's the reality of every individual life, every individual heart that has had this moment. And even as our disciples, as we see them here, struggle with this because they're still in this world. I wonder if he might even have been talking to the father who brought this child Because in Mark's account, he's challenged to believe, and he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. I think there's something reassuring for us, perhaps, in that, that we can go to Christ and say, I I do believe. Help my unbelief. Because there's times where, like, I know it's true, but I'm just not feeling it, and I I need your help. What it says then is Jesus said, bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. Think about that moment. If the demon threw him down, then Jesus must have knelt to pick him back up, to hold him in his arms and say, here's your son. He is healed. That his loved one knew the healing that Jesus brings. That's why in that last line it says, as you can imagine, they were all amazed at the majesty of God. Notice this. Jesus does a miracle and they recognize it as God's majesty. It's not coincidental that Luke writes that here. Jesus does a miracle And they recognize God's majesty. Here's the reality. There is glory on the mountain, but there is also majesty in the valley. We worship him for his majesty. We see it at work around us. There's glory on the mountain, but there's majesty in the valley, and he is the God of both. In fact, for fun sometimes, you go read the book of Judges, Yes, for fun. As you weave through that story, there are moments where the enemies of God's people attack them on the mountain because they think they'll have the upper hand there, but then God shows up and defeats their enemies. So they switch to the valley because clearly their God is in the mountains. Let's fight them in the valley. And God shows up there too and still defeats their enemies because he is God of the mountains and the valleys. Everywhere you go, he is there and he wants to be with you there so that we can put our faith in his power not only for ourselves, but also for others. You know, I struggle with this sometimes. And and I'll be honest with you. I, I love to see those moments where you step back and you say, the Lord works in mysterious ways. This happened and that happened and this happened and that happened and it all came together and that's how I knew. Like, we're moving to Cincinnati and we're going to Horizon and it's going to be awesome because God lined up 750,000 things, right? That's a mountaintop thing. That's a good moment. That's a clarity from God that we need. But sometimes what happens to me is, well, what about Tuesday? Right? What about Wednesday? How do I get that back? 
And sometimes I realize I'm, I'm not chasing his will for me or his word for me as much as I'm chasing that emotion, that feeling, that I, like I need the buzz. Like if I'm going to be faithful, if I'm going to obey God today, if I'm going to take a chance for his name, if I'm going to reach out to my friends who don't know him, I need like the buzz first. Then I'll be ready to go. But uh, Pastor John Kirby here told me something once that, that really stuck with me. He said, sometimes you get that moment of clarity because you're really going to need it later when the thing God called you to do becomes really difficult. You know, that, that it, it starts as such a blessing. And I love when the Lord speaks to me this way and, and I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready to go do that hard thing. And then later it becomes like really hard. And you're not on the mountaintop anymore. But he gave you that moment. He made that certain because he knew you would need it to be able to persevere. So instead of chasing the emotion, instead of chasing the high, instead of chasing that time where it feels like it's easy to hear from him, we remember what he has taught us and we bring that back to the valley. The mountaintop prepares us for the valley. You know, again, there was a, a little something of this that the disciples were missing. But Jesus wants to make sure that it sinks in for them. In fact, he uses those very words. In verse 43, it says that they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears. The idea being not just you hear them, but you absorb them. Let these words sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them, so that they did not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. What an interesting moment we have here. Jesus says, not just, hey, listen up for a second, guys. Or like, I, th I think when I'm talking to my own kids, there's like, hey, guys, can you listen for a second? Or, hey, Bell, Obed, Axel, please. And then there's like, Look me in the eyes when I am speaking to you. What I am about to say is the most important thing I'm going to say for the entire rest of the day. You have to get this. If you, don't, if you ignore everything else I'm doing, listen to me right now. This is the moment that Jesus is having. He says, let this sink all the way down into your ears. You need these words. I love you? No, I mean, he says that, but not here. You guys are doing great. Keep up the good work. Well, not here. What is it that he wants them to hear? Because in fact, remember last week's passage? What did God say about Jesus on the mountaintop? This is my son, whom I love. Hear him. Listen to him. Now Jesus comes back to the valley and says, hear me, listen to me. Right? In chapter 9 last week, it was verses 34 through 36. We're just about 10 verses later as he says this now in verses 44 and 45. On the mountaintop and in the valley, listen to Jesus. So what is it that God said, you've got to listen, and then Jesus said, you've got to listen, and what he says is, because I'm about to be betrayed. Well, I would be confused too. That's the thing? <laughs> That's the thing, like, we have to write that down? Where did I put my pen? He's going to be, uh, did you say betrayed, Jesus? Um, into the hands of which men? Because we could probably avoid this. Like, is this the moment when Peter starts thinking, better keep a sword with me at all times so I'm ready for whenever it is that that happens. I I'm ready to chop some ears if that's what it takes. 
I don't know. You know it says that, that they didn't understand it, that it was hidden from them. Even more interesting than that, I, I think, is that it says they were afraid to ask him. You ask him. I'm not asking him. You ask him. Well, I don't know what he's talking about. You ask him. You know what? Let's just, uh, just, just write it down. We'll talk about it later. Right, what a strange moment. I, I don't know if it's, you know, we're gun shy because we just failed at this, this demon thing and then he could do it when we couldn't and I better just, I better not bug him right now. He called us faithless and perverse, so I'm not asking any more questions. I, I don't know. But, but this is what I would encourage you with. See, see, Jesus knows that they need to know ahead of time that the cross is coming. Even though they won't understand. Even though there's a hint here that it's actually hidden from them on purpose. That they don't need to understand yet. But they need to know that it's coming. It's the exact same thing he talked about on the mountaintop. The glory of God shines on him. And so Moses and Elijah gather around and they don't reminisce. They talk about the cross. They talk about his death. When he comes back down the mountain, he gathers his followers and he doesn't talk about, guys, wait till you hear who I saw on the mountain. No, he talks about his betrayal. That moment that is coming that will lead him to the cross. And we sang tonight, lead me to the cross. That's exactly what he's doing as he prepares them. As he is their personal trainer, he's saying, follow me, just know where this ends up. Why? Because if Jesus was only here for glory, if he was only here for power, he would not have come here. He would stay in heaven and he would just party with the angels. Even if he was here, if he was only here for glory, if he was only here for power, he would have stayed on the mountaintop. He doesn't need to come back down here and deal with these multitudes and these demons and your problem and your problem. But that's not why he's here. He is here to seek and save what was lost. He is here to take away the sins of the world. He is here to save me, to save you. He is here because he loves that person that you thought of earlier tonight. And to bring them the healing like he brought this boy means he's going to the cross. Means that he's willing to die. Means that he's willing to do whatever it takes to use his power for others. To overcome sin. That little boy that he just healed, well, his past is healed now. His present is transformed, but it's through forgiveness, through the sacrifice that he made on the cross, that our future and our forever are secured. That's what Jesus offers. That's why it's so critical that what God told us to listen to, what Jesus tells us to listen to, is why he was here. Again, they must not have understood it too well. We know it says they didn't ask. I would encourage you, don't be afraid to ask God. Don't be afraid to talk to, you know, your group leader, a pastor, a mentor, another Christ follower that you trust and say, hey, I'm having a hard time with this thing Jesus said. Can you help me understand it? That's valuable. The disciples didn't, and so we see quickly what happens instead. Verse 46 says, you would think it might say something like, and so the disciples learned also how to be humble, how to use power for others, how to sacrifice themselves. No, instead they have a, a debate about who's, who's the awesomest disciple, pretty much. <laughs> then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart. Now notice that because in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 39, we learn that only God can do this. Only God can read the thoughts of a person's heart. 
And yet this isn't even the first time we've seen Jesus do it in Luke. You remember back in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus is healing the paralytic and forgives his sins? People are thinking to themselves, he can't do that, only God can do that. And so then he does something else that only God can do, and he says, why are you thinking that? (laughs) Um, Thinking what, Jesus? I wasn't thinking anything. (laughs) This is a God moment for God in the flesh, that he reads their thoughts and says to them, and, and took a little child and set him by him and says to them, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. This is the second time in our passage tonight that Jesus holds a child. My wife and I were cleaning my daughter's room earlier today, and I can, I can show you this on my phone later if you care. Maybe you don't. But there was a picture that she had drawn labeled Jesus and me. And it was a man that is, I suppose, what Jesus looks like to her. And she was sitting on his knee. And I thought, oh, that's a cute kind of like a metaphor. Actually, No. No, Jesus does this. Jesus loves every individual so much that even with children who at the time would have been seen as the least of these, not important, not influential, they have no power, they have nothing to offer, he says, that's exactly why I want you to see how much I love this child. Do you see this child? Imagine you're that child. Wow. The guy that just cast out a demon, he's saying that I'm special. Okay? That was a literal child, but that is you. That is you. Jesus telling you every single individual matters. He takes that child and he shows them how to receive others in his name. That when we do that, when we receive him, we also receive God who sent him. And then he gives that line, for he who is least among you will be great. Now remember where this all starts? A mountaintop experience where Jesus is declared as the greatest of all. And yet he comes down to serve, to use power for others. So I wonder tonight, who is the least among us? Who is the least among us? Maybe not in this room, but maybe in our day-to-day existence. Who is the least among us in our town? Who is the least among us in Cincinnati? Who's the least among us in the world? Does something start to formulate in your mind? There may be obvious answers to that. Perhaps we think of the less fortunate, the poor, the homeless. Absolutely, there are ways that these people are are the least among us. They have the least. They have the least influence, just like this child. It has been amazing for me Um, hanging out with our team at at City Gospel Mission, which if you want to check that out, uh, Monday evening this week, 5.15, meeting here at Horizon and then heading over to City Gospel Mission to serve a meal to the least of these. Why? So I can get home and say, did like 50 meals tonight. Probably not. (laughs) But because God has me in a position that they're not in and I can help someone else. I can show them his love. I can receive them in his name. You see, that's a critical piece of it. Because then it's not just good works that are in my name and now I've got more cool things I can say I do, right? It's in his name. That's the difference between serving others and, and just, like, social justice, right? Am, am I doing good things in the world? That's great. Am I feeding people? That's awesome. Are we helping others? That's good. 
But those meals, they're eaten and then they're gone. Someday when the Son of God returns, all this stuff is going to disappear. But are we using what we have now to make an impact that won't disappear? That's how the least become great. That when we serve the least among us, it's more than just pat on my back. It's in the name of Jesus. A friend of mine here at Horizon, we had lunch a couple of weeks ago, and, and he shared with me how he had the ability to retire, actually, even earlier than he had expected. And so he was really excited about his retirement, and I thought, cool, so like, let's hear that thing about travel the world, and you know, what, what are you going to do with your free time? And he said, because I've been involved in this prison ministry where I mentor guys who've just gotten kind of off the tracks in life, and now that I got to retire six months earlier than I thought, I've got an extra six months to really dig into life with those guys. Are you serious? Man, like, two things happened in my heart as we were talking. I have maturing still to do because that is not where my brain went. But also, like, your heart starts doing flips. Like, how incredible that is and how blessed those guys don't even know that a guy like Mike wants to spend time with them in that way. You know, that he can take what he has learned from life, that he can take what he knows about Jesus and bring it into that place. And just yesterday, I was talking to Mike about this. I said, is it okay with you, you know, if I share this thing? And he said, yeah, you just got to know. Here's the thing. I would say, make sure you tell people this. The only reason that I think I've seen any success in that place is because the other thing that's happened in my retirement is I've had the ability to look back at all of the verses I've ever memorized in my life and realize I'd forgotten at least half of them. So I'm memorizing them again. I'm just letting God speak to me through that. And it's incredible how he will use those things in the conversations that I have when I go to serve others. The mountaintop prepares him for the valley. But you know, it's not just the poor among us. It's not just the prisoner. They are absolutely, sometimes the least among us. Sometimes they are overlooked. But what about that person who is overlooked because they're not overlooked enough? And what I mean by that is, think for example, you think about your coworkers. Maybe you think about your employer, your boss. Ah, well, that's just my boss. He's doing better than I am. He makes more money than I do. His company's stronger than mine is. Like, what, what, what does he need help for? You may have just overlooked him. Well, could it be that there are times when that person is just as overlooked and we begin to treat them like the least of these because in some way they're not... I didn't mean to say they're not worthy. I just... Well, I guess I just never thought about could I bring the mountaintop back to that person. I don't know who that might be in your life, but think about that. Who is the least... In your life? Who's overlooked? Who is it that nobody else is reaching out to that God might have you in a unique place with unique resources to impact, to reach out to, to show them His majesty in their valley, to show them what the mountaintop looks like? Think about how you can use your resources, use your influence to receive them in Jesus' name. You know, maybe there's something even tonight from these words that, that Jesus wants to sink into your ears as you think about the people that are on your implore list. That list of people that you're praying for. Because you know what? 
Every single one of us here tonight can be like that father. And maybe we're not physically carrying the person we love, but every one of us can be like that father. Say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief, but I believe you for this person. It may be someone you love. It may be somebody who's overlooked, but would you bring that person to Jesus? Would you bring that mountaintop back to this valley? Let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. As we sang tonight, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. God, you know every name that has been on every heart in this room tonight. You know if there's two or three or four people that we just long to see know you. God, we beg you for them now. We implore you for them now. And I pray, Lord, that as we go out into our communities, into our city, into our families, Lord, that we would not overlook anyone, but like that child that you drew to your side, we would see people as people that you love who need to see your majesty. Lord, that we would know what it's like to spend the time in your word and to bring that back to the people around us. God, that we would never think that we could do it on our own, but that we would always rely on you. And Lord, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy, and for your your forgiveness to do that in our lives. Lord, we ask all of these things in the name of your majestic son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for being here tonight. We will see you back next week for more of Luke. Thanks for coming.